Thanks, Kev. That's great. Great to be back here this morning. Anthea sends her regards. But I thought when I came this morning, I should be wearing a big badge saying, she's fine. <laughs> so many people wanted to know. So thank you very much for your love and your concern. Second week of the treatment she's having, and uh, you just don't know how it's going to develop. But at the moment, she's got all of her hair intact and stuff like that. So who knows? Uh, she's not feeling bad at all. In fact, I've said to her this week that... Um, uh, she's at more danger for me than she is from the cancer. Because if she uses that word fine again, I will throttle her. So there we are. So if you put the body under the patio one of these days, draw your own conclusions. Anyway, let's read together, shall we, from the Gospel of Luke. We're going through the story of the life of Jesus. And we've reached the point at which Jesus starts work. Jesus goes into action. And uh, I want to read some verses from Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 14. And uh, what they say is this, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogue, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on a Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he pulled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were, turned, were uh, fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his, his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. Uh, I assure you that there were many widows to be found uh, in Israel in Elijah's time. And the sky was shut for three and a half years and was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. But not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through them and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. That's enough to start us off this morning. Um, let me just uh, do my usual advert for tonight. Tonight we're doing another in the Great Question series, and we're talking about can you really believe the Bible? <laughs> and uh, I want, as usual, to give you three ideas I think you could use if you're talking to somebody who's not a Christian about this kind of subject. And uh, tonight we'll just look at three topics, three big questions that people ask about the Bible. Have some of the words been changed? People often say, oh, it's like Chinese whispers, isn't it? You go down through the years, all of these crumbling old manuscripts, they gradually change into something quite different from what was originally written. Can you be sure that you actually have the words of a book that was written over 2,000 years ago? Then second, who's to say we've included the right books? <laughs> there have been lots of suggestions over the last few years, Dan Brown with the Da Vinci Code and so on, that the books we have for Bible are pretty much there by accident. 
or by prejudice or politics or something like that. And there are lots of other scriptures that gives a very different view of what Jesus is like. And if we hadn't suppressed those things, then we'd have a very different picture of what the Bible is teaching. So have we got the right books in there? Is it that some Bibles have more books in them than others? We'll have a look at that question too. And third, you've got to ask the question, isn't it full of embarrassing mistakes? Aren't there lots of things in the Bible that just don't add up with other things that are there in the Bible? Aren't there unhistorical bits? Aren't there mistakes and, and, and things that we now know could not possibly be the case? Well, we'll have a look at some of those tonight. I'm not going to use so many audio, audio bits tonight because we keep on having problems with, the, with videos. But I have got some good stories. I've been teaching this subject at Cape Henry Bible School, the authority and inspiration of scripture, we call it, for 30 years every year now. So I've got some good stories, I can promise you that. So if you want to come and listen tonight, we'll have a look at those questions. And in the second week, uh, we'll talk about what those three quest things are that you should hold in your mind that you can go and help other people with. Anyhow, let's get back to this morning. And uh, what we've been doing over the last few weeks, you might remember, is talking about uh, the way in which Jesus grew up, the temptation of Jesus, and last time it was the disciples of Jesus. Jesus started calling his disciples almost as soon as his ministry began. And we asked questions like, what is a disciple? How did people become disciples of Jesus? And what does a disciple look like? And we said, well, disciples had been around for a few hundred years at this point, because when the children of Israel, or, or the people of Judah, were taken into captivity in Babylon, they had no temple, no official system of teaching, and rabbis, Jewish uh, gifted scholars, started taking groups of disciples, people who wanted to learn the Bible, and teaching them. And there were three things involved. It wasn't just a matter of your mind learning to learn, uh, to interpret the scriptures and make sense of them. It was also a matter of learning to live. Because your disciple, your, your rabbi, became your role model, and you copied everything he did. And if he didn't live it out, he was a hypocrite and a sham, and you wanted nothing to do with him. And so you patterned your behavior on him. So Jesus' disciples had to learn about the scriptures from Jesus. They all had to look at Jesus as their perfect example. And there's your emotions as well. The disciples were, were never individual disciples of a rabbi. They lived in a community with others. And so, as we said last time, that was the same with Jesus' disciples. Common purse, travelled around together, somewhere no, sometimes nowhere to sleep at night. And they did it all as a group. And they are spiky individuals who don't necessarily get on easily with one another. And as a result, they learned love in that kind of environment. Love for their leader, but love for the group as well. And we talked about how uh, the Jesus, the choosing of his disciples, went through different stages until he was able to send out 72 of them uh, to spread his message throughout Galilee. But uh, that can make it sound very orderly. And I've read that passage that uh, we've read together this morning, particularly because it shows it wasn't always plain sailing. Sometimes Jesus encountered big opposition right from the start. And uh, getting his message out there uh, obviously was a big success. It says later in Luke that people from all over the place flocked to hear him. And we, 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 we know the stories, don't we, about the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, the time when Jesus had so many people crowding around the lake shore, he went out in a boat a few yards out on the land and uh, was able to preach to people from there. And it was the only way he could handle the numbers that were coming to listen. How did Jesus actually share his message? You see him being thrown out of the synagogue in, in Nazareth because he's implying that... Um, they're nothing special, that there are other people that God wants to reach his people, and sometimes there are people who are not even Jews, and that's a terrible, terrible story for them, so they throw him out. How did he ever sell his message? 
Lord Beaverbrook, the guy who founded the Daily Express and made a, a fortune out of it, used to call Jesus the divine propagandist. And he wrote a book about Jesus' sales techniques on, on the basis of that. But how did Jesus actually do it? It was quite, uh, quite something to, to, to gain popularity he did uh, as quickly as he did. It's the sort of thing that people are fascinated with nowadays. And we are bombarded nowadays by people who want to sell us something or change us in some way or persuade us of some message. You might not notice how much it's increasing, but in the 1970s, the average person would encounter something like 500 to 1,600 adverts every day. Well, since then, a few things have changed. In 2021, it was calculated that we now watch between 6,000 and 10,000 advertising messages every day. In fact, I remember back then there was an advertising executive in America who read that figure and thought, that cannot be right. I'm going to spend one day and count up all of the adverts I saw. And he worked out that by breakfast, he'd been bombarded by 498 advertising messages. So he gave up at that point and never went beyond breakfast. And we hear all of this stuff, the total digital spending this year, the money that people have spent on advertising in the U.S. alone will be over $700 billion. Can you imagine how many things you can do with $700 billion? And all of that goes into advertising because people think they can really lever people's minds into doing things that they didn't think they wanted to do just by spending that money. If you look at just one, one big source of, of influence, Google, this is the way that Google's advertising revenue has gone up since uh, 2001. That's the start of the graph. That recently, just a quarter of a century ago, not even that, um, when, when they got back $0.07 billion a year in advertising. That's how many sales it generated. Look at the way it goes on. Until now, they're responsible for $224 billion of sales every year. That is quite something, isn't it? And people are investing that money because they think they can change people. Now, Jesus didn't involve any of those techniques. Jesus was quite different, and yet he had more of an impact on history than anybody else has ever had since. How did that happen? Let's just retrace it a bit. This is not Alf Garnett, although I always think he looks like it. This is actually a Bible scholar called James Stalker. He used to be putting on the screen here uh, dead Scotsmen and saying how wonderful they are. This is another one in the great series. James Stockdale uh, was a Bible scholar who died in 1929. A great preacher, actually, as well as a scholar. But he was good at making things simple. And he, again, is somebody whose, whose work goes on. Uh, I got a little book uh, from my father uh, back when I was, I was young called The Life of Christ by James Stocker. And it was a tiny little shabby book. It's still being produced now, though. And you can buy it on the internet looking like that. It's still around. I remember looking at it thinking, oh, I'm not so sure about this. It took years before I read it. It looked as dull as ditch water. Actually, it wasn't. Because Stalker was great at keeping things simple and distilling things down. And he goes through the life of Christ and he says that in Jesus' public ministry, there are three years. The public ministry of Jesus is generally reckoned to have lasted three years. And each of those years, he says, has peculiar features of its own. There was the year of obscurity to start with. After Jesus' baptism, we don't know totally what he was doing, but we know that he was, he was uh, gaining disciples. And at one stage, they looked around and said, whoa, he's got more disciples than John the Baptist. But he was working alongside John and in his own way, spreading the same message. And his disciples were baptizing people. We just didn't know much about that year. Uh, the, the, the gospel God tells a great deal about it. Then there's a year of public favor. That's the year when Jesus went back to Galilee and started preaching and healing and all sorts of people started flocking to him and saying, wow, this could actually be the Messiah. Then everything turns against Jesus. There was opposition right from the start, as we've seen in the reading that we had this morning. 
But it really came out and strong in that third year, and that's why he calls it the year of opposition. And if you look at the map of Israel, you see how it all works together. This is Palestine. The two places where Jesus mainly worked were Galilee, where he came from, uh, in Nazareth, and uh, Judea in the south. Now, Judea, of course, was a much more classy area than, than Galilee. Galilee was a bit working class. Judea was where the power was. It was where the government was. It was where the temple was. It was the, the place where Herod was centered and all of that kind of stuff. And so um, Galilee was an outlying region. It was a region where Jesus felt familiar, where he felt at home, where his disciples mainly came from. But Judea was the center of uh, what was going on in the religious life of the nation. And so if you put uh, that grid on it, the stalker grid, and say, where was Jesus in these times? The first thing is, in the year of obscurity, he seems to be mainly in Judea, maybe down in the desert by the Dead Sea, maybe around Jerusalem. He did a few things, we know. But he started out at the heart of where uh, the nation's religion was. It was as if he felt, God has given me this mission, I've got to start down here. But rejected pretty much by people in Judea, in the year of public favor, you find him doing virtually all of what he did up in Bali. And that's where it really took off and people started listening. Lots of miracles took place. Uh, lots of Jesus' great teaching was given. The Sermon on the Mount took place in Galilee, all of that. Then in the year of opposition, well, it's kind of half and half. He starts off in Galilee, and as things get tougher for him, he reaches the point where he's right up at the top of that map, the top of the yellow bit there, in Caesarea Philippi, and the transfiguration happens. And three of his closest disciples see Jesus in all of his glory for the first time. And Jesus starts then to tell them about the fact he's going to die. And they can't handle it to start with, but they follow him anyway. He goes gradually down through the country, as we'll see in, in weeks to come, and ends up in Judea. And there, uh, for the final uh, time in his ministry, he, 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 he says and does some important things, and in the end, they arrested and crucified. So that's the way it works out. Now, how did Jesus do? How was he working in all of his stuff? I think there were four main ways in which Jesus worked. First of all, there was a teaching. He did some tremendous stuff, and people were amazed, as we saw in the reading already, at his authority, because he spoke with authority, not like the scribes did. He, he, you know, many of the, the scribes would say, well, you know, Rabbi so-and-so is this, and uh, Rabbi such-and-such says that, and they completely disagree, but I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I don't know for sure, but don't quote me on this. And Jesus wasn't like that. He just said straight on the shoulder, this is what God says. You people, this is what you've had staring you in the face from the Old Testament for years and years. You've never really put it together, have you? Let me tell you what God is saying to you. And whoa, they'd never heard anything much like this. And so there was his teaching. There was also his storytelling. And we'll come to that next week. Because Jesus' parables, there's nothing like them in ancient literature. Where did he get those stories from? And people used to hang on to every word he said because he was just the most amazing teller of stories. And yet all of those stories had a sting in the tail. And we'll learn that next time. There were the miracles as well. And uh, Jesus clearly got a reputation very quickly for being able to do things which were just astounding. It was not an act that he took around with him. I mean, one of the things that upset them in Nazareth in the synagogue, they were all sitting back and <laughs> here he is, local boy comes home again. Hey, oh, look, he's going he's gonna to preach to us this morning. Oh, maybe he'll do a miracle or two. Oh, I've got a pain in my back. Can maybe sort that one out for me? And Jesus says, listen, I'm not going to do anything. <laughs> and Jesus sometimes did that. He didn't do miracles when people were expecting him. He wasn't a showman who was saying, here we are, we're going to do the Jesus show this morning. Let me show you. Let's uh, start off. And to prove I'm the son of God, I'm just about to turn Kevin Bartlett into the frog. Zap, there you go. Applause, please. It wasn't like that at all, really, was it? And Jesus didn't do that sort of stuff. But Jesus did miracles. 
and quietly, often. Very few of his miracles were done in front of great crowds. They were offered in sick rooms, where there were only two or three people, where he chased everybody out, the closest and dearest people, before he actually did them. He wasn't going to build a name for himself through those miracles. And then finally there was his team, the disciples. Now, we talked already about his disciples, that was last time. We're going to talk about the, the miracles uh, uh, next week. So for the last part of the, the, this morning, I just want to talk about those two things. Jesus' teaching and Jesus' miracles. Because when you understand them, I think you get to the heart of what Jesus was really about. Let's start with the teaching. I think there are two things to look at when you look at how Jesus taught. Well, loads of things. And one of the best things you can do if you want to get the best out of this series as we think through Jesus' life together will be to read the bits I've been skipping over. Because there is just so much. There are so many stories. I was really frustrated starting trying to prepare this week because and all sorts of things you want to mention and you just can't bring them in without uh, carrying on for the next two weeks and getting everybody to bring sleeping bags and stuff like that. So um, uh, we're, we're keeping it very, very much the, the overview. But do have a look at the details. Look at it look in the Bible, in any of the, the, the four gospel accounts and, and, and just see what uh, you see about this. But the two points I want to make are, first of all, about the style of Jesus' uh, teaching how he said it, and second, the content, what he said. Because both of those things struck people and made them think, think wow, we want to hear this guy again. We've never heard anything like this before. What about the style? Well, I think there are three things that struck them. The first one we've talked about, his authority. He spoke as if he meant it. He spoke as if he believed it. He spoke as if he had what God had said to proclaim the people loud and strong in a way that hadn't been heard in Israel for 700 years since the last of the prophets did, well, 400 years anyway, since the last of the prophets did their stuff. Uh, Jesus had a confidence that he knew the word of God and what God wanted to say to those people that they'd never had before. Second, he spoke with power. His word has still its ancient power. No word from him can fruitless fall. I was just thinking about that when uh, Bob was, was saying that uh, at university, in that very civilised country that you went to, sir, um, the, he actually read the Sermon on the Mount. Now, that's not exactly a gospel appeal, is it? <laughs> and I don't know how people make those kinds of connections in their minds. I don't know how the Holy Spirit is on people's hearts. But still, when people read the words of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus today, something happens. It's incredibly powerful stuff. And certainly that's what the first audiences found, wasn't it? Authority and power. But the third thing was grace. Because you can speak with authority and you can speak powerfully without giving people the sense that you really love them. You really care for them. You want the best for them. And Jesus was full of compassion. And that's what came across to all sorts of people. It's why children went up to talk to him. It's why women who normally would never say boo to a goose, would come and try to, to touch the, the fringe of his clothes because there was something about him that made him, made him feel he just cares. He's got the power to do something for me, and he will. So all of that was there in Jesus' style. But what about the content? Well, I think there were three big things that Jesus stressed that they weren't used to hearing about too much before that point. The first thing was God the Father. Because we get used to the idea that God is a father and all of the rest of it, but that all comes from the New Testament. You look back in the Old Testament and you'll see that God is mentioned as a father twice. That's kind of picture language. But Jesus kept on talking about the father, my father, your father, our father. And he kept on talking about the father because he wanted people to see quite clearly this is what God is like. Not some far-off deity to be worshipped and feared, but someone who cares for you as a father cares for his children. And somebody who might have a special relationship too. Because he didn't be very often our father. 
That's how the Lord's Prayer starts, isn't it? When the disciples say, how should we pray? He said, okay, start our Father. But when he's talking about God's relationship to all of them, he very carefully says, my Father and your Father. As if he has a different relationship to the Father from the one that they do. And that was the second thing in his preaching. So much of it was about himself. He said quite bluntly, separated from me, you can do nothing. Now, he was obviously a humble guy. He wasn't somebody who was promoting himself uh, for any, any reasons of vanity or anything like that. But he was somebody who was quite insistent on the fact that he was in a special position as far as God was concerned. And everything that they needed could flow from him. And so he talked about himself in all sorts of ways that people found slightly disconcerting. He talked about himself for as the son of man. And to us now, that might just be, oh, you're saying he's a human being. But he's not. If you read the book of Daniel, you'll find that Daniel has a vision of one like unto a son of man who goes right up into the presence of God in the clouds. And all power and dominion is given to him. He's given an enormous place at the, the side of God in heaven. And so when Jesus says, son of man... He's not he's referring to himself as a human being. He's claiming an authority that no normal rabbi would ever claim. And uh, the third thing, you might have thought I was going to say the Spirit here. Jesus did talk about the Holy Spirit. But the third thing that sticks out to me in Jesus' teaching is the kingdom. He talks about the kingdom of God. Now, the Jews believed that God was going to come back uh, to establish a kingdom. He was going to send a Messiah, an anointed one, who would uh, get rid of Israel's enemies and, uh, and create a kingdom in which there would be love and peace and justice and fairness and prosperity. All of those things for the first time ever. The world would be the way God wanted it to be. And Jesus spoke about the kingdom. <laughs> he said, right from the start of, of, of his preaching, the kingdom of God has come very close to you. It's already started, it's already here, but it's an invisible kingdom. You can't sum up Jesus easily. Some people would say, well, I was just a politician, he was just looking for power. But as we've seen, he wasn't. In fact, at one stage, um, after he's fed the 5,000, this is what happens. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they started, began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world, the one's got to bring in God's kingdom. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. He slipped through the net. He got away. He wouldn't allow them to stick a crown on his head and say, you are our leader, you are our king. He didn't want that. Why didn't he want that? Well, Billy Graham explained that in the newspaper column a few years ago. He said this, Jesus refused because he knew this was not God's plan for him. If he became an earthly king, he knew his power would be limited and he would never touch the whole world. Political power has its place, but it can never meet our deepest moral and spiritual needs. Instead, Jesus came in order to bring a, 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 to become a king of a different type, a king who would rule in our hearts. This, after all, is what we really need, because our greatest problem is within our hearts and minds, and this becomes real when we turn to Christ in repentance and faith and commit our lives to him. This is what Jesus meant when he said, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's come close to you. Jesus wanted to be a king in a different kind of a kingdom. And the, 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 he talked a lot about the kingdom, but he had to get them away from the army. This was going to be some, some earthly political structure. So the other question people could ask was, well, was he just a prophet then? And this is the way that many people saw him in his own day. The authorities who knew a bit about the Bible weren't so sure about it. Because Jesus sometimes said things that made them worried about the status he was claiming. And at one stage, this is what happens in the, in the Gospel of John. Uh, he's talking about Abraham. 
And uh, his opponents say, you're not yet 50 years old, and you say you've seen Abraham? And very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself. He was good at this, wasn't he? Slipping away from the temple grounds. Why would you pick up stones to throw at somebody? I mean, it's a bit of a complicated sentence. Before Abraham was born, I am. You might say, Jesus, that's not good grammar. But you wouldn't want to throw stones at him. That's terrible grammar. It's, no, it doesn't work that way, does it? Well, it's because, you see, I am was the sacred name of God, which was so holy that to, even to take it on your lips was swearing. And Jesus wasn't just thinking it on his lips. He was saying, I am the I am. I'm eternal. I, I go back to way before Abraham. And they certainly got the message. Now, somebody who's like that is either mad or he's, he's, he's uh, trying to con people. Or he really is telling the truth. C.S. Lewis said this. In my opinion, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic suffering from that form of delusion which undermines the whole mind of man. He says there are some kinds of delusions that just affect you from time to time. You know, uh, when you suddenly go away with the fairies. I've got a friend who's delusional sometimes. And he believes he sees Tony Blair in the streets and uh, Tony Blair gives him a job to do for the government. And it's no point saying, but, but, but Tony Blair is not the prime minister anymore. Because 90% of the time, my friend knows that, and this 10% of the time, when he's under those delusions, whoa, he's away with the fairies, he really is. And uh, so, uh, Lewis is saying, this kind of delusion undermines the whole mind of man. If you think you're a perished egg, when you're not looking for a piece of toast to suit you, you may be sane. But if you think you're God, there is no chance for you. So did Jesus really mean it? Did he really believe that he was God? Well, again, Lewis uh, was, was uh, attacked by people who said, uh, uh, maybe this is a story that just grew up around Jesus and it's got into the Bible and, you know, his original followers just invented it to, 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 to big him up a bit. And he says, this is difficult because all Jesus' followers were Jews. They were all Jews. They belonged to that nation which of all others was most convinced there's only one God and there couldn't possibly be another. Very bad that this horrible invention about a religious leader should grow up among the, the one people in the whole earth least likely to make such a mistake. If you wanted to sell Jesus to the Jews, you would not say, and by the way, he's God. That's blasphemy from day one. And so that would not be a great selling point. So Jesus' teaching was original. And it wasn't completely clear. People didn't understand totally what he was, he was talking about, but they remembered it. And I think that after the day of Pentecost, when you suddenly find people becoming Christians all over the land of Israel, that's because suddenly Jesus' teaching starts to make sense in the minds of people who'd heard it but not really understood it. They remembered the parables. They remembered the sayings. They remembered the miracles. And suddenly it all started to make sense. That's what Jesus was shooting for in his teaching. Well, finally, though, because the clock is beating us, just a few words about Jesus' miracles. The important thing to get about Jesus' miracles, and we've already said this really, is that they weren't performed as a proof that Jesus was somebody special. It wasn't that Jesus was saying, huh, huh, you don't believe I'm the son of God? Okay, let's do something miraculous. Uh, let's let's uh, turn the sky purple or something. He, he wasn't doing that sort of stuff. In fact, as we said, most of his miracles were not intrusive ones. They were not big public ones. He wasn't a Paul Daniel. You're not going to like this. You're going to like this. Not much, but you're going to like it. You know, he wasn't doing a sort of magic routine. What he was doing... Uh, were not, was not that way. In fact, the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, came to Jesus at one point in Matthew chapter 16, you read about it, and they said, uh, and they tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. 
And Jesus said something mysterious about, you're not going to get any sign, it's like the sign of Jonah. By that he meant, I'm going to rise from the dead in just the same way that Jonah came out of the, the big fish. And that's the only miracle that you're ever going to see that he's going to really test you. Why wasn't he prepared to do them? Because he was using those miracles to prove who he was. If you understood who he was, then the miracles made perfect sense. Otherwise, it didn't. So why did he do his miracles? What were his miracles about? Let me just say three quick things. First of all, his miracles were about people in need. He did a lot of things just because his heart was full of compassion for people who were desperate. When, for instance, a blind man at the roadside says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stops and heals him and moves on. It wasn't an important miracle in many ways, but it was something that was done just because Jesus cared. And so, first of all, his miracles were about people. But second, his miracles were about promises as well. Because right down through the Old Testament, you see God promising what this new age, this kingdom of God is going to look like. And it wasn't going to arrive physically and geographically in Jesus' lifetime, but it was going to start it invisibly in people's hearts. And so these physical signs were a way of showing that all of the promises of the Old Testament were going to come true. Those promises about the prosperity of the kingdom, well, that's perfectly mirrored, isn't it, in the feeding of the 5,000. And it's straight after that, they say, oh, king, let's make Jesus a king. Because they can see what Jesus is doing is the kind of stuff that God had been promising for centuries. And so the miracles were about God's promises coming true. The third thing about the miracles was they are pictures of the future. Jesus was showing what he could do in people's minds and hearts. And when, for instance, he brought people back from the dead, the young man, the, the widow's son from Nahum, the daughter of Jairus, the little girl uh, in, in Galilee, uh, Lazarus, towards the end of Jesus' life, tremendous showing the power that Jesus had over death. It was a picture of what Jesus could do to liberate people from their whole dead lives, give them a whole new life, an incredible future they'd never have from anywhere else. So Jesus' miracles and Jesus' teaching. And you might look at this, and I, I must admit, preparing this, I did this, and thought, well, I'm going to be telling them a lot of stuff about Jesus, but where do we take that in our own lives? The question at the end of it, let's face it, is where does that actually leave us today? Where do we go with this stuff? Because we can never be like Jesus in some ways. You're never going to do lots of miracles. At least if you are, let me know. I'll have 10% of the proceeds. But, um, you know, I don't think you are. I don't think you're going to teach or preach like Jesus. And however much I try, I'm never going to be a patch on him. So what can we take from this? We can never be like Jesus in some ways, but in other ways we can. Let me just mention three, and with this I'm completely finished. First of all, Jesus did everything he did in order to bring glory to God. What you find about Jesus from the start of his ministry right through to the very end is he never pleased himself. He never set to please other people particularly either. The sole focus of his life was, I'm going to glorify God. I'm going to bring pleasure to the heart of my Father. Now it's all too often for us as followers of Jesus to go around with several different agendas, isn't it? Some of the time we want to glorify God. Some of the time we want to please ourselves. And some of the things we do, we do because we don't want to offend other people. But Jesus' whole focus was on glorifying God. And if you do that, then everything else falls into place. Second, he showed people the Father. He told them about God. And we've been hearing a lot about that this morning, haven't we? And what the team have been up to and others in the streets. And, 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 and it's important that Christians do that. Tell people the message because it's being forgotten. 
in so many parts of our civilization today. And yet it still has its ancient power. And when people see the message clearly for themselves, miracles still happen. And uh, Jesus showed people the Father. But he did it not just in words. He did it in the very way he lived. When people saw that what he was, then the message started to ring true because there they saw somebody who looked like God did. The third thing, he was good news in every way. He was not just good news to lepers or good news to the blind or good news to the deaf and dumb. He did good wherever he went. And he was not just a preacher who was concerned to get the word out and make sure that his audience understood and responded to what he was saying. He was somebody who just showered his goodness on everybody he met. And that's a challenge for us, isn't it? To live a life like that. A life where people look at us and say, I don't know what he's on, but I want some of that. <laughs> I don't know what makes her that way, but I wish I, w I had it. So that they'll start to explore for themselves and find in the words that we speak the confirmation of the, th the way that we are, a life that's been changed and transformed by Jesus. Let the earth hear his voice. We're going to sing about that, I think, Kevin. Is that right?